stories from around the corner and around the country. You're listening to All the Best. Proudly supported by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders past and present and also recognize that the area where FBI Radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance and resilience for First Nations communities. This week, we're sharing stories about coastal creatures. We'll meet a couple of underwater explorers and discover some of the unexpected ways in which we're all interconnected. It was in the non-fiction section of my primary school library that I met my first under-the-sea love, the dolphin. According to the cool facts printed on glossy pages next to oversaturated images of the creatures, dolphins are extremely clever and friendly. To me, they were the horses of the sea. I pictured myself riding into the waves on the back of a dolphin friend to escape the worries of my nine-year-old life. They were the sea's heroes, contrasted with the obvious villains, sharks. Reaching adulthood caused a rude awakening. It turns out that dolphins aren't so perfect. In fact, they can often be jerks. I also learned that sharks are incredibly cool, and mostly just misunderstood. What I love most about sharks are the people who are passionate about them, like Annika Craney, a Cairns local who was bitten on the leg by a shark. While she was being wheeled into the ambulance, Annika shouted, I still love sharks, to the TV cameras and onlookers. I guess I like the sea for the ways in which we are reflected in it. No pun intended. From seahorse single dads, to queer whale behaviours, to the story of a creature being maligned by society. Whether we're under the sea or outside it, some things remain the same. First up in this week's Sea Adventures, a wild fish chase. We're following Amelia on her quest to fulfil a childhood dream of meeting a blue groper. The light in the water is changing as the sun begins to dip and the swell is picking up. I'm losing precious visibility. I half fight, half surrender to the currents and zigzag through the haze and fizz and weeds, searching and searching and searching. And then... My name is Amelia Murtha. This is Looking for Blueback, the story of my quest to fulfil a childhood dream. When I was a kid, one of my absolute favourite books was Blueback by Australian author Tim Winton. 
Blueback is about a boy named Abel and his decades-long friendship with an old fish, a blue groper, that he meets while diving with his mother. Thinking back to my childhood, I must have seen a lot of myself in Abel. He's an only child, his mother is his best friend, he loves animals and really takes environmental issues like pollution and land degradation to heart. I know I'm not alone in saying that ocean swimming is really special and deeply gratifying. It's like there's something instinctual about the body that returns to salt water. I live on Bidjigal land in southwest Sydney and driving the 30 to 40 minutes to Clovelly Beach in the eastern suburbs is something I like to do pretty often year-round. But I've only heard about and not seen the blue gropers that live in the marine reserve there. I turned 27 pretty recently and honestly it's not an age I thought I'd reach. But I'm still here and out of all the things I think I owe my younger self, seeing a blue groper is on top of the list. Despite the pains of depression, I still have an innate belief that magic and wonderment persist out there in the world, waiting to be experienced. It's reading books as a kid, like Blueback, that taught me that. So I'm going on this quest. A wild fish chase, if you will. But doing it thoughtfully, as in I want to go in a little bit prepared. I reckon my best shot at success is to talk to someone who knows blue gropers very well. My name is Chris. I'm doing my PhD in marine science at the moment, and I primarily focus on fish ecology. Blue gropers, they're part of the Labradae family of fish, so they're characterised by this sort of uh, smooth-looking tail of sorts, and they're usually quite long-living and quite colourful, like the blue groper, which is that stunning, you know, almost you know, deep blue that you've, they pumped up the saturation of. True, that's very well said. And are they, like, usually all that blue? It depends because their blue gropers are sequential hermaphrodites, so that means they start off as uh, female juveniles and they're usually pink, so like a pinky colour when they're really small and then as they become a mature female, they sort of become a brown colour and they often have some, like, white spots. And then once they hit a certain age, they'll transition into... Um, a male, and that's when they get their characteristic very, very blue colour. I also spoke with my friend Katika, who has recently developed an obsession with snorkelling. The first time I saw a blue groper was two days before the new year. There's heaps of fish down there. Yeah. Like so many. And pretty much immediately I saw one blue groper by itself. And I was like, oh my ass, like a blue My friend was just like, <laughs> you look like a child. <laughs> an excited child. So yeah, it was really exciting and then I was hooked from then. After chatting with Chris and Katika, I'm somehow even more keen to see a blue groper. I think it's time we head to Clavelli Beach. So I'm at Clavelli Beach <laughs> with my girlfriend. I came here yesterday midday with mum and it was really, really choppy. Very low visibility. So no, I did not see a groper. But um, I've, I've brought the snorkel today and today could be the day. Have you seen a blue grouper around here before? Oh, yeah, almost every time. Oh, amazing. Maybe like a couple of times. Yeah, a couple every of times. Every time I, I, uh, I snorkel here, yeah. Over there? Yeah, between the stairs uh, furthest to the sea yeah. 
And the next lot? Yeah. Yeah, there's lots of blue grapers. Everybody thinks they've seen Bluey the graper, but I'm sure there's been many blueys over the years. So, yeah, there's plenty of them around. I jump into the water with my girlfriend Shani. And ten minutes later, she notices something going on nearby. I hopped out of the water to catch my breath because I'd been in for a little while. And a mother and her two sons were getting into the water. And one of the two was particularly adventurous, just dove straight in and started snorkelling. And he pops his little head up and turns back to the mum who's still getting in and goes, Mum, there's the grouper! (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm on the other side of the water swivelling at every flash of colour in my peripheral. I lift my head out of the water to check where Shani is. She's calling my name and waving at me. They're over here! I race to get to her. She's beaming, pointing below us. I dip my head and see the fuzzy shape of something speckled and blue disappearing behind a rock. Before I fully register what I've seen, something else swims by, another pulse of blue. I spin left and right, trying to find what everyone else has apparently seen. In my confusion, I forget how a snorkel works, and I'm taking sips of salt water. My body doesn't make sense to me, arms and legs out of sync. Have I just missed my one chance to see them today? Because they've definitely slipped out of sight. The light in the water is changing as the sun begins to dip and the swell is picking up. I'm losing precious visibility. I half fight, half surrender to the currents and zigzag through the haze and fizz and weeds, searching and searching and searching. And then I see them, swimming one behind the other. One is speckled and bluish, with a sea urchin in its mouth, and the other is my dreams of blue manifest. Tiny fish are attached to their sides like it's a fish parade. When they split up, I keep following the bluest groper. Watching him feels like the closest thing to hovering over planet Earth in space. I bring myself down until I'm level with the groper, and we're swimming side by side. His eye rolls around to look at me, and for that moment, nothing else matters. (laughs) Just catching my breath. I must have been swimming for what, like half an hour? At least half an hour. We didn't just see one groper, we saw two. Meeting a blue groper in its natural habitat was less an insight into another world and more an expansion of what I understand about the one I've been living in my whole life. And this project has reminded me of things I really liked when I was younger, but thought I had to leave behind or leave up to other people as I reached adulthood. Things like making films or learning about outer space. We're finally seeing a very special bluefish. Thank you to Chris and Kartika. And thank you for joining me on this quest. My name is Amelia Murtha and this has been Looking for Blueback. 
You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. This week is Coast Care Week, an annual campaign that recognises the Australians actively involved in restoring and protecting our coastline. I had the joy of meeting one of these wonderful people, Sean Liddy, a marine ecologist currently completing her PhD on the ecology of sharks at the University of Sydney. Sean shared her own encounters with underwater creatures, why sharks have a PR problem, and some astonishing ways we're all interconnected. Sharks have this kind of invisibility cloak, um, just humans do as well, of microorganisms. So it's made up of uh, things like bacteria, fungi, viruses, um, and and they're not all bad. They're not all disease-causing. They're actually uh, symbiotic, and um, we wouldn't be able to function without them. They play a huge role in host health. So um, I'm trying to understand more about the, the impacts and the importance of these microorganisms, the invisibility cloak, for sharks. Oh, cool. Okay, this is a very obvious question, but I do want to know, what is the coolest creature that you've come across in your underwater adventures? Oh, such a difficult one. (laughs) (laughs) Probably like the most basic question, but we need to know. The people need to know. The people need to know. I think uh, one of my favourite marine creatures, which I actually sought out specifically. I went on a trip to the Philippines so that I could um, see thresher sharks and go scuba diving with thresher sharks. And if people haven't heard of them before, they're this um, amazing shark that has a super, super long tail. It's almost the length of its body Um, and they come up from the deep so that's why um, you can see them in this one area in the Philippines they come up um, just um, at dawn you can see them coming up to cleaner stations um, and they they cruise around and little cleaner ass come in and and eat all of the parasites and things off their off their teeth in different areas of their bodies and yeah I just think they're amazing they can breach out of the water they can use their tail to um, actually whip fish whip their prey um, to stun them before coming around to eat them afterwards. So, um, yeah, that was a big bucket list um, item that um, I was able to go and see. I felt very, very lucky. (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. They sound very slay. (laughs) (laughs) So you work with the ocean, in the ocean, with the ocean, that the ocean is your (laughs) colleague. Um, But why is the ocean important to you? What led you to focusing on marine ecology? Yeah, the ocean gets employee of the month every month. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I grew up on the coast and um, uh, my grandma lived right behind Colorado Beach. So she'd go there every day. And I think she instilled that routine and that love in me as well. Um, I also had an amazing science teacher in high school. Um, Shout out to Miss Mags. (laughs) And she uh, would run field trips, taking us down to the rocky shore to run transects and, and, and get to learn more about the amazing biodiversity that we have um, kind of right under our noses here in Sydney. And um, the more I learnt about it and, and the more, I, yeah, I realised kind of how important it is not only as amazing, um, it's full of so many amazing culturally and ecologically significant animals, but it's really the lungs of our planet. It produces every third breath that we take and um, it's such an important livelihood as well for so many people. Um, yeah, so 
all of that, learning about it and also growing up, I think our generation is super aware of all of the threats that the ocean is facing, really made me want to be involved in its research and, and its conservation. And I think that's why science is so amazing because you get this, um, you get to understand the processes and, and patterns at play in the ocean and you get to try and come up with solutions to different uh, conservation issues. So, yeah. yeah, after doing all that, going swimming and diving, I was hooked. <laughs> That's awesome. The lungs of our planet. I love yeah. that. That's great. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like, I think you're right. Like, I think a lot of people kind of in, like, our generation... Um, have an interest in the ocean, like an, an, an understanding. And I would go so far to say as like a lot of people have dreamed to have the job that you have, but then <laughs> didn't quite make it to the, you know, actually studying it part. Um, but yeah, so for all those of us who, you know, never made it, <laughs> um, what is it like a day in the life of a marina ecologist? Ooh, it's such a broad field. So there's, there's no one, one answer to that. Incredible. Uh, my PhD thesis is uh, looking to understand sharks as mobile ecosystems. So um, it's asking a, a question that we ask in macroecology, um, what is living where? But instead of, say, fish in uh, different habitats in the ocean, I'm looking at my species as microbes and the habitat, the landscape, is the shark. So... This is really important because microbes, yeah, are this huge source of, of genetic variation. They, they impact um, our immune system. They impact behavior. So many different um, functions that we depend upon to survive. Um, and we, we've started to understand this in humans. Um, and it's something that I really love um, to think about as well is the fact that you have more microbes associated to your body than you have uh, human cells. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, we're truly never alone. <laughs> no, absolutely not alone. People um, describe it as a meta-organism. So the, the organism, like the human or the shark, for example, and their community of microbes, there's something that you have to look at holistically. Um, and it's also called a supra-organism. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's absolutely important to kind of understand how linked those um, those two parts are. We've actually co-evolved um, and outsourced, co-evolved with our microbiota and, and outsourced so many physiological functions to, to our microbes. So we, we really couldn't survive if, if we didn't have this um, amazing hidden diversity. And we're only just starting to know more and more about it. The past few years, um, bacteria and, and viruses have gotten a really terrible rap, but it's important to understand that, yeah, we, we do depend on them. They are symbiotic. They don't always cause disease and they can actually help protect us from disease. So I'm trying to understand the community of microorganisms present on different uh, body regions of the shark. So their mouth, their gills, their nostril, um, all over their skin. What was it that drew you to sharks in particular? I've always been fascinated by them. Um, and I think think that they get uh they're really misunderstood I think that it's it's such a, a stereotype but it, it's true they um people don't realize how threatened they are so um there's some recent research that has come out showing that 60% of uh of, of reef associated sharks um are threatened with extinction in a lot of parts of the world 
they're facing rapid declines because of uh, overfishing, or uh, because of habitat loss due to urbanisation and climate change. And they are so, so important to creating this healthy marine ecosystem, um, which, yeah, is we rely upon for food, um, also, yeah, things like tourism, diving, everything like that. One example of, of how sharks impact the ecosystem that I, I love it's, it was a study of, of tiger sharks and, and how their mere presence actually impacts the herbivores and, and the way that they graze in an area. So large herbivores like uh, turtles and dugongs. When sharks were present, the turtles and dugongs, which graze on seagrass, would graze in kind of an even way. They'd kind of be mowing the lawn in an even way um, around these seagrass habitats. And, and that actually stimulates the growth of the, growth of the seagrass um, because they're, they're always have to stay on the move because of the, the presence of, the, of their predators. But when you remove sharks from that ecosystem in areas where sharks don't exist, then they actually spend way too long mowing the lawn in one spot and it can lead to the collapse of that um, really important habitat, um, which, yeah, can lead to, yeah, the collapse of that ecosystem. So, yeah, I think that they're, they're just amazing. <laughs> yeah, they're just, like, hanging out and are, like, so yeah, powerful. Absolutely. Yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah, it is sad. Like, I do, if I, you couldn't tell, I do love sharks as well. Yeah, but I do no. not know how... Um, like even a fraction that you do about them, but I think they are great. And I am so sad that they kind of have this like PR problem, essentially. Mm. Yeah, um, absolutely. Jaws. <laughs> um, but so sharks have this incredible uh, role in their ecosystem. Um, is it the same thing with like the blue groper? Yeah, so... Sharks maintain the balance of all of these delicate networks that exist in marine ecosystems. And, uh, and that's what they do as predators. So they prevent the number of species that might be lower in the food web from, from exploding or, or, yeah, from being overabundant and, and causing the collapse there. So blue gropers are also predators. They're, they're, they're mesopredators, which means they're kind of in the middle there. And they're actually known to eat um, sea urchins. And, and lots of other um, kind of, yeah, invertebrate prey, small fish and things like that. And I think it's important to realise that when you take out any animal from the ecosystem, from this delicate network, there's going to be cascading impacts um, and, and they might be unidirectional, so, so going, going down that network, or they could impact it in, in multiple ways. So when you remove blue gropers from an ecosystem, that's the loss of food source for those um, higher level animals, but it's also going to change the abundances potentially of animals below them. And so there's some research which has looked in the, the loss of predators of urchins, just like blue gropers, on urchin abundances. And, and this has been looked at down in Tasmania, especially, and, and, and further down south in more detail. Um, and the loss of that predator has led to um, increases in abundance um, of things like urchins, which can then overgraze uh, seaweed, um, which is a really important habitat former. It's like the seaweed is like the, the coral of, um, of temperate or colder water in, environments. 
So, yeah, I think it's really important that we take whole ecosystem approaches to conservation. If it's a shark, if it's a turtle, if it's a blue groper, or if it's some tiny little worm that lives in the <laughs> sand, or if it's microbes, they're all these um, really important parts. Everything is, is super connected. There's recent research and a recent call, actually, to include microbes and, and microbial restoration or microbial conservation um, in kind of the, the global conservation conversation, <laughs> um, which is, yeah, that's that's a quite a new step to be taken, uh, to be taking. Um, and I think, yeah, it just highlights that nothing exists in a vacuum and we need to value all forms of life, not just um, if in a conservation um, kind of lens, not just those that are charismatic because everything depends on one another. In this vein of con cons the conservation conversation, yeah. <laughs> how can, you know, the regular ocean lover or beach girly contribute mm. to conservation effort? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that one of the first things is to share your passion. If someone is passionate about the ocean, talk about it. Keep that conversation going because the more awareness that we have around the issue, um, the more likely people are to connect with it and then to, to want to assist, to yeah affect that change that, that we want to see. Um, and I think when doing this, it's really important as well to remember that um, people come from diverse backgrounds and everyone relies upon the ocean and everyone benefits from its resources in different ways. So whether that's diving, surfing, going for a walk along the beach, but also things like boating and fishing, we need to find, I, I, I think that finding that common ground with, with people that um, we're speaking with first is so important to then having more conversations about how we can kind of affect change together. A great way that I got involved in this uh, a number of years ago now was through a local program called the Friends of Cabbage Tree Bay. It's run by Northern Beaches Council and um, it's a group of volunteers that they have a, a weekly program. Um, every weekend they're down at this no-take aquatic reserve, which was um, established um, around Shelley Beach in Manly. And they, uh, yeah, have conversations with people that come just walking along the shore, let people know about the incredible biodiversity that we have right there on our doorstep and how we can protect it. So they're um, what's called um, de facto management. So that's a really effective way to, to help make sure that these no-take aquatic reserves can be successful. And they also get involved in um, a whole lot of other things like uh, seaweed restoration, um, other citizen science projects. Uh, it, yeah, it's, it, it's an absolutely fantastic community and you can look at um, where to volunteer uh, on the Northern Beaches uh, Council website um, under the volunteering tab so that's available one other thing that I wanted to add to um, how people can get involved in and support conservation initiatives I think it's really important to amplify and listen to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices and support policy that does that as well because it it's the oldest continuous living culture in the world um, and they've been custodians of land and sea country for over 60,000 years, sustainably managing the environment and I think that Western culture has so much to learn 
um, from those practices and, and we, we, I think listen, listening and, and learning from that is, um, is something that could really help our sustainable management as well. Yeah, like sustainable mm-hmm. fishing and stuff like that. It's possible, like Indigenous cultures mm-hmm. have done it for so long, you know. With yeah, and also um, something that I think always always builds a good little bit of ocean karma is whenever you go out into a natural space, um, doesn't actually have to be the beach. Just trying to remember to um, take three for the sea if you can. Um, because of how connected everything is, whatever natural space is, is accessible to you, so if that's a river or bushland, um, that it all is connected to the ocean in, in one way or another. So, um, yeah, something that um, you can do to help is, yeah, three bits of plastic whenever you go to, to um, a natural space. And, and yeah, I think that's a good one to remember as well. Something yeah. easy. Take three for the sea, the, the lungs <laughs> of our planet. It's Absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> Great phrases. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sean, for joining us and sharing your knowledge and sharing, you know, the important work that you do and the stuff that we can do to, you know, Hope that. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been wonderful. That was marine ecologist Sean Liddy. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal Land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung lands and 8CCC on Arunde and Waramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mel Chun, and Phoebe Adler-Ryan is our production manager. Our social media producer is Isabella Lee. Patrick McKenzie is our community coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and we're made possible by the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Madhura Prakash. Thanks for listening.